Well, good morning, Story family. I hope you all are doing good today. Welcome to the Story. Uh, my name is Eric, and I'm the lead pastor here. And for the next half hour or so, if you talk to people close to you, they'll tell you it's more than that, probably. I'm going to be doing a little bit of teaching, but uh, first, I just want to say hello. And thank you all for being here. Um, I want to thank the, the band for leading us in, in those songs this morning. Our drummer, Angel, had to call out sick. And so, Angel, uh, you're probably tuning in online. We want to say hey and hope you're feeling better. Uh, Angel never misses, so I'm really worried about Angel today. But uh, really grateful um, that uh, the rest of the band pulled together. And uh, I hate it, in a way, when the band does such an extraordinary job of channeling the Holy Spirit that my face is all wet by the time I get up here. But it's not sweat today. Yet, it's tears, and um, the Holy Spirit has moved in such a powerful way um, during this service and the last one that I just, it's overwhelming. Part of the reason that I think uh, it's such an overwhelming experience right now at the story is because of what an extraordinary year that we're having. Like, if you've been around, you know, like, what a crazy, unforeseen um, year that we've had so far. It's not even over yet, but like, what a powerful move of God that we've seen. Only the power of God could do the things that we've seen. And I know everybody expects a pastor to say that, but I've never seen a church go through something like what we've been through and um, come out in such a victorious way as we have this year. Just 144 days ago, after many months of like figuring out what was going to be next for us, um, we closed on April 25th uh, on the church's uh, new home um, at 3223 uh, Westheimer Road. That was just, what, five or so months ago. And um, really, it's taken us five months to even figure out, like, to begin to figure out what the magnitude of this even means for us as a church. Just an extraordinary turn of events. You know, three years ago, we didn't really own any properties or have any properties of our own at all. We had, like, a maybe lease for a Spirit Halloween store in Montrose, if you remember, and, and very little else. And um, now God has just turned all of this around, and he's given us this sweet season, 20 months of, of respite here in the, in the museum district that has been awesome. But I kind of want to give an update before we get too far into today's message so that everybody's on the same page because things are about to get a little wild around the story. And regulars of the story are like, he always says that. Things are about to get, things always are wild at the story. And you're right, things have not been normal or easy or simple since like 2019. And they weren't that normal then, but um, it's just been one disruption after another. Well, we've got a big season ahead of us. And I just want everybody to be aware that um, given all of these changes, everything that we've been doing over at our new um, future home at 3223 Westheimer Road, um, Pastor Gio has been leading the remodel project over there. And it's done to the extent that we'll be able to move quicker than we thought initially. So we're probably looking at like seven more Sundays at 4910 Montrose Boulevard. And okay, all right. So y'all are happy? Didn't know you hated it that much. Okay. So I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. I know it'll be nice to have a parking lot and all that. So that's uh, it's nice. We have so much to look forward to, so many awesome opportunities to just advance the gospel of Jesus, and really amplify the mission that uh, we've been given. And so um, with all of that in mind, I just wanted you to know probably seven more Sundays here in, in maybe early, mid-November, we'll be moving over there, but not into the nice, beautiful sanctuary. We're moving into the gymnasium for probably six months 
to six years, depending. Now, hopefully closer to six months uh, as the sanctuary is being remodeled and all of that. But um, the gym is kind of where we started. The story was uh, born in a gym in 2015. Uh, we lived in a gym for almost two years. And so we're going back to a gym for a while. And it's probably good for us to start setting up chairs and tearing them down every week and all that stuff we used to do. Um, so it's going to be a fun season. Just wanted y'all to know that's coming. Also sort of attached to that, you can imagine, like a year like the one that we've had um, comes with uh, just an extraordinary amount of just uh, resources needed, not just money as part of it, but like uh, just for the leaders and staff. I pray for the staff of this church all the time. We've just put them through so much stuff that they didn't sign up for when they applied for whatever job they're doing and all these moves and changes and everything. It's just been really overwhelming. Y'all keep praying for the staff and the pastors and the board members and leaders. Um, also, you know, as we look ahead to the last quarter of 2023, we really need to come together as a community to make sure that financially we're starting this next season on, uh, in the right place, on, a, on the right foot. I know um, last year, around this time last year, really a little bit later, October of last year, we started raising pledges and money for, um, for the purchase of the, the new property, right, that we had no business purchasing because we, we were just less than a year old at that time, I think. Um, yeah, less than a year old at that time. And God did his thing. Y'all did your thing. And, and praise God, we have that place. But because we did that campaign during that season, where, where we usually would have done an annual sort of, hey, let's support the ministry budget for 2023, we didn't do that part. And still, we've managed to keep our heads above water by God's grace and your faithfulness. I just thank you so much. You notice we don't pass the plate around on Sundays. And some of you are like, how does this place even pay its bills? Well, people that love the story contribute to the story sort of offline or online in some cases, but like not on Sunday mornings is what I mean to say. And so that has worked. It's helped us keep our heads above water. It can only take us so far. However, we've gone from having no properties of our own to having three significant properties here and in Timber Grove and in River Oaks that we're maintaining and, and the River Oaks remodel and everything. And we've, had to, we've also acquired a school of all things now. We are, we, you guys who we'll call the story home, you're part owners of the Bethany Christian School now in a way. And, and so, so many things have happened and it's really just time, it's, it's kind of gut check time for us as a community. I know many of you extended and even overextended to, to help us purchase the property, and I respect that and honor that. Some of you may not have been around when we did that push for that um, capital campaign, and this might be your opportunity um, in the fourth quarter of this year to make your difference. And some others of you might be in a place where you can go the extra mile. Between now and December 31st, we're trying to raise a certain amount. You can find all the information um, on the postcard you were given when you came in. If you didn't get one of those, you can grab one on your way out. If you're watching online, or if you want to do it here, you can go to the story.church slash prepare, as in prepare the way, the story.church slash prepare for more information. All right, so big things are happening. Thank you all for stepping up as always. And I know God's gonna do even greater things in the future than he's done already, which is unimaginable, but that's what he does. So thank you. And I love you all so much. Um, today's message now, uh, you have study guides that you were given when you came in. Those should be in the comment section online, wherever you're watching online. If, uh, if you're part of our online campus today, you can click the link to find the study guides. This is part two of 26 in our series called The Acts of the Apostles, uh, how a handful of nobodies became a uh, movement uh, for everybody. We're studying the book of Acts in the New Testament for uh, 26 Sundays. The reason is because even though this is one of the most prominent books in the New Testament, it is perhaps uh, maybe behind Revelation and a couple of other more obscure books in the New Testament, 
one of the more uh, unfamiliar books to Christians and folks that have just kicked the tires on Christianity. We know the Gospels better than we know the book of Acts. We know the letters of Paul probably better than we know the book of Acts. For the most part, the book of Acts is a big unknown. We're unfamiliar with it. Now, the exception to that unfamiliarity is today's passage, which from Acts chapter 2 is probably the most familiar passage in the book of Acts, one of the more familiar passages in uh, the New Testament. Here's the challenge with teaching and learning about a familiar passage like this one we're going to study today. You think you know it already. One of my favorite comedians, who I'm not going to share his name because you'll judge me for liking him, all right? So he's not a Christian comedian, okay? So uh, he said, I'm not a Christian anymore because I heard all the stories. I've already heard all the stories. I heard it all, and so that's it. Well, that's not how it works with the Bible. The Bible doesn't just work this way in terms of the breadth of the Bible. The Bible is also layered. And so every time you read a new story or reread an old one, you peel back a layer and see what's under there and go deeper. And so today I'm going to challenge you to go deeper with uh, this story from Acts chapter 2, lest we fall into that trap of knowing the story in our mind without really knowing it deep in our hearts. So let's let the Spirit of God speak to us through this through this passage today, okay? Acts chapter two, verse one is where we'll start. Um, This is the story of Pentecost, as it's commonly known. Uh, You can grab a Bible from the chair back in front of you, or hopefully you've got a Bible of your own you brought with you. If you don't have a Bible, take the chair back Bible home with you, and we would love to, to gift you with that. Here we go. When the day, when the day of Pentecost came... They, that's the the believers, the disciples of Jesus, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. If you know your Bible well, know your Old Testament, you know wind and fire are regularly uh, symbols of God's powerful presence. So that's clearly what's being communicated so far, wind and fire coming upon them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues um, as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard in their own language, in their own language, what was being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. Anyone going to applaud my pronunciation today? (laughs) Usually skip those parts, so thank you, thank you. All right, all right. Egypt and the parts of Libya near Serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. They're drunk. Like that's the, really the first accusation levied against the spirit-filled church in the New Testament. They, they, they've had too much to drink at nine in the morning, right? So who are these people? So uh, maybe you've been critical of Christianity and they, Christians to you just look a little crazy, just look a little drunk. Or maybe you're just genuinely curious about Christianity and you're here today to, 
or listening online today to sort of genuinely, authentically kick the tires on this faith, this religion, and see if maybe it's for you. You're like the first group of people that were watching saying, what does this mean? You hear a passage like Acts 2, and that's your question. What does this mean? It's a great question. And I encourage that kind of curiosity rather than uh, the cynicism that can so easily take hold of us. So what's happening? What does this mean? Acts chapter 2. Now, a lot of churches and a lot of pastors will get very sort of specific and try to make a, a universal point in a sort of a narrow way. And what I mean is some pastors will look at this passage and say, well, this passage is all about the birth of the church. And it is partially about the birth of the church. I mean, this is the inflection point of the New Testament. I mean, from this point on, everything else that the disciples do, you're going to see the rest of Acts, everyday people like Peter the fisherman who couldn't even fish well, even though that was his only job. Like you had one job, Peter, fish. He couldn't catch any fish. His nets were always empty. He's going to become like the second greatest preacher in the whole Bible in just a minute. That's by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to see healing. You're going to hear about, you know, all kinds of extraordinary things happening. You're going to see the church advancing against every odd, against the, the, the whole deck being stacked against them, Rome cracking down on them, everything happening against them, and yet the gospel cannot be stopped. The point of this story isn't just the birth of the church. It's like a greater thing. It's the inflection point in all of the New Testament that really represents the outpouring of God's power that enabled the church to be the church. So that's obviously a um, huge part of what's happening here. Other, other churches and pastors will emphasize the point of um, Pentecost, as in Pentecostal like worship and speaking in tongues especially. A lot of you probably think Acts 2, Pentecost, speaking in tongues. Like that's the associations that you draw. And this is about the gifts of the Spirit. Obviously, that is a part of this story. It's not the whole of the story. And the speaking in tongues thing is... I mean, it's, it's, there's overlap between what happens in this story in terms of speaking in different tongues and what Paul describes later as glossolalia, which is the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. But those aren't necessarily exactly the same thing. All I'm saying is that there's more going on here than what you might expect or what some churches and preachers might want to emphasize, right? So when we look at this story, for what it really is, like, like try to delete your memory of all the VBS you went to as a kid, all the Sunday school classes, everything you've heard about, and just read the text plainly, and you'll see that this is a story about the awesome outpouring of God's Spirit upon the people called the church, an outpouring of God's Spirit that filled them up in some way and animated them or inspired them. That's literally what the word inspired means, to put spirit in some, someone or something. It inspired them, the spirit inspired them to be who God wanted them to be. Now, this phenomenon, it was not a spontaneous thing. It did not happen in a vacuum. For hundreds of years, the prophets of God had been foretelling this. The spirit of God had a huge role in the Old Testament. He had already been around. It wasn't like an introduction when the spirit of God came upon the people of God. He was already part of God's work in the world. I mean, all the way back to Genesis. Look at the second verse in the Bible sometime. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 says that the earth was void. It was formless. And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. So the Spirit of God played some role in the creation of all things. 
So he's always been around. He's always played some role in God's greater plan. Um, and, and, and the prophets foretold that one day he would be poured into the hearts of all believers, all people of God, even though the Holy Spirit is active in the Old Testament. You would see, for example, in the Old Testament, individuals get some kind of anointing or direction from the Holy Spirit. The Lord would send the Spirit of God so they could do one thing, one particular act. And even in that context, when you got Saul and Solomon and, and Gideon and others in the Old Testament being anointed or sent by the Holy Spirit, you've got prophets like Joel saying this. Look at this passage from Joel chapter 2, which is a foretelling of something yet to happen. He said, and afterward and after all these events that he's been describing, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So the Holy Spirit active in some limited ways in the Old Testament but being foreshadowed or foretold in a more full uh, sort of expression in the day yet to come, according to Joel. Okay, so if um, you're hearing this as a non-believer, I just want to explain real quick what we mean by the Spirit of God. When we talk about the Christian understanding of God, we're talking about one God, but we're talking about three expressions or three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. You've probably heard of this before. Um, and, and we, as believers, relate to God in uh, three unique ways, really. We relate to the Father in some ways that are specific and unique to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And it seems to me I could be off. Maybe it's because I've been raised Methodist, and I've been a Methodist my whole life, but it seems to me that most Christians today are more familiar, intimately familiar with the Father and the Son than we are with the Spirit. Why? I don't know. I've got some suspicions. I think on the one hand, we have a problem with the Spirit in terms of clarity. I think we lack clarity in our understanding of the Spirit in ways that we might not lack clarity in our understanding of the Father and the Son. Somehow, and this is an imperfect analogy, and I know I'm going to get some email from some theologian that knows better than me. Okay, go ahead and write it. I don't care. So the, the way I was thinking about this this week is like, I know why that's true for me. It's true for me because I can conceive of and relate to the Father intellectually, and that's a comfort zone for me. That's a, a sort of a strength of mine. I enjoy that theoretical, intellectual practice. I like thinking of the Father as God Almighty, creator, God, provider, God, you know, the, the God who loves us from on high, that sort of all-powerful God. That's God the Father. I can conceive of him in my mind. I can know him intellectually. And when I think, and this is, again, imperfect, when I think of the Son, I think of a more of an emotional connection that I can really get into. I can appreciate the Son's role as my Redeemer, as my Savior, as the one who laid down his life for me. I'm moved by the Son's sacrifice on my behalf. I feel him on a heart level, you know? So I can relate to the Father intellectually. I can relate to the Son sort of emotionally. But when it comes to relating to the Spirit, there seems to be this universal reality that the Spirit relates to us experientially. Experientially. So to relate to the Spirit of God is to experience the real 
presence and power of God in a way that kind of unsettles you and uh, takes you out of the driver's seat of your own life. It requires a submission that most of us aren't accustomed to. We would rather not. <laughs> if all things being equal, we would, we would rather uh, not submit ourselves to that sort of thing. And, 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 and so we have all this confusion about the Spirit because he's scary in a way. You ever thought about it? Like, maybe that's why Christians disagree so much about the Holy Spirit. Christians don't agree about a lot of the non-essentials, you know. We, we agree that Jesus rose from the dead, and then it's like a free-for-all in some ways. It's like everybody has all these denominations and all these different things and practices. And all. But where the Holy Spirit is concerned, man, you might, have, you might be like me. I've got friends who are um, like hardcore Pentecostal charismatics. I've got in-laws who are hardcore <laughs> Pentecostal charismatics. And for them, it's like if the Holy Spirit don't show up, on a Sunday morning and affect all of us like he affected all of them in Acts 2? Like, have you ever really been to church? Are you even a Christian? Like, that's the sort of spirit or vibe that you get sometimes from that, that group. And then I've got other friends who are like seminary graduates, and they have pipes usually, and they're, they're the beards and mustaches, and they're very sophisticated, usually Calvinist, Presbyterian types. They're very uh, sure of themselves in their thinking and their systematic framework of the divine, and uh, they have worked it all out. And as best as they can tell, the, the uh, supernatural, extraordinary gifting of the Holy Spirit to allow people to speak in tongues and miraculous healings and all of that, all that stopped at the end of the apostolic era. So when the original apostles passed away, so did the apostolic era, and so did these supernatural giftings of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we should just uh, cease with all that nonsense for now. We'll get more of that in heaven. And uh, that's the, you know, that's the, we'll leave that to the peasant class of Christians. That's the kind of spirit that you get from this kind of person. I love both groups, but I see uh, some flaws in both uh, ways of, of thinking, I guess. And, and really what I see is a desire to kind of uh, maintain control, you know? And that kind of brings me to the second point. I think the first reason we're, uh, we lack intimacy with the Holy Spirit is a lack of clarity. The second is just a fear of losing control. To hand over the keys of your life to the Almighty God and His Spirit is uh, an act of trust. That's why that song that we sang, the second song, which is a Nathan Bonus original, the worship leader today, he wrote that song, Trust You, I Will Trust You, Whatever You Put Me Through. <clears throat> However you move, whatever you move, whenever you move, I'll trust you. Boy, that song has wrecked me recently. I listen to it on Spotify and other places just because it's such an apt song for the season of life that I'm in with everything going on with the church, with everything going on personally with my mom and family and everything, I've just had to have that creed be spoken over me and by me and sung in the car when I'm stuck in traffic and just wanting to throw up my hands. You know, you get there? You ever been there? Like, I will trust you even then. And we sang it today and you get all weepy-eyed just thinking about how liberating it is to trust God. Because I spent over 30 years, probably more or less, trying to trust myself trying to be my own God and failing miserably. <laughs> and I, I've spent years prioritizing my own freedom over the freedom of God and got, getting neither my freedom or the freedom of God. 
That's one of the great ironies of Scripture. Once you learn to prioritize God's freedom over your own freedom, you get both. And God's power over your own power, you get both. The power of God around you, the power of God in you, you find yourself living a powerful faith. And so that's why giving God control is so hard because his spirit brings power. And that's the first thing I really want to teach about the the Holy Spirit and what he does today in our lives is that the Holy Spirit brings power beyond our control. So there's no staying in the driver's seat. There's no God is my co-pilot. You're not his equal. You know what I mean? Like if God's your co-pilot, then you're his co-pilot, and that'll never work. You know what I mean? He doesn't need a co-pilot. All right, you either give him control or you, or you don't. You trust him or you don't. And this is kind of the age-old story. We would much rather be our own gods than have him take over, or we think we would. That goes back to like Genesis 11. Remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Like that story is one of those we learned a long time ago. We don't really know what it means. We're kind of familiar with it, you know. The Tower of Babel is this story in Genesis 11 of all the people being uniform. They came together as one. They looked the same. They talked the same. They, uh, you know, wanted to all live together uniformly in one city. They wanted to build one city and one great tower, glorious tower. And the, the catch isn't all of that. The catch is their motive, why they wanted to do it. And Genesis 11 tells us why they wanted to do it. Genesis 11 verse 4 says this. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. That's it. They didn't want to build something for God. They wanted to build something for themselves, and they wanted to make a name for themselves and not, you know, magnify the name of God or give God any credit. And so y'all know how the story ends. Some of you have lived that story. I've lived that story. It never ends well. And this one doesn't either. God destroys the tower and scatters the people. And over time, they start to look different and talk different. And that's how we have diverse peoples all over the world. That's the Bible's explanation for that uh, sort of uh, phenomenon, okay? So when we look at the Babel fiasco, um, it really kind of helps us clear up some of our confusion about uh, the Holy Spirit. Because when God poured out his spirit in Acts 2, what happened? It was a reversal of Babel. In Babel, they were uniform in every way. They looked the same and, and talked the same, and God scattered them. And in Acts 2, they were all different. Did you hear it? Every nation under heaven had gathered together, but they all spoke their own languages and looked different, and they were all factions and separated groups and things like that. And then the Spirit of God was poured out and brought them together. By his power, he made a way for unity to grow in diversity, which is a beautiful image. And it's something that the world claims to value, right? You, how much do we hear every day about diversity being a value of, of the world? And, and the narrative of the world usually these days is that the, the, the secular humanist kind of world values diversity, but old religious people, they want separation and division. And the gods of these old religions, they're, you know, they're intolerant, but we enlightened secular people are tolerant. As someone who lived in, under that banner of enlightened sec, secular humanism for quite some time, I can attest to the fact that what is called unity in that worldview is really more uniformity. Because unity requires 
a real willingness to love people who aren't like you. And in today's world, that's not what's happening, is it? Like, what's happening in today's world is, like, you better get in line with the narrative. Like, whatever issue you're going to talk about, there's a, there's a narrative that's approved by somebody <laughs> somewhere, and everyone's supposed to get in line with it. And if you don't, then you're, um, you, you know, an, an outcast. You're a conspiracy theorist. You're a whatever. And, and you know, we, we, we don't have to accept you. That's not unity, you see. That's uniformity, and it's false. It's of this world. Unity is a divine mandate from God that is dependent on diversity, first of all. God is a lover of diversity, real diversity, not this secular lie called diversity, but real diversity. And God loves bringing diverse peoples together and loves to bring them in not only into the same place together, but into the same understanding where they're hearing each other, where they're growing in faith together, where they're one body, one family, one church. That's why what makes Acts 2 so amazing is the movement that it sparked. There's never been a more diverse movement under one banner as we have with the church, under the banner of Christ. People like to say, and I know a lot of those same folks I mentioned earlier, the secular humanist Western types, like to criticize the church for being Western, a product of Western civilization exported by these hateful missionaries and imposed on the peoples of Africa. White men didn't bring Christianity to Africa. Like, reverse, the, reverse those groups, and you probably have a better picture chronologically of how Christianity spread. Some of the first Christians were Africans. Christianity has been in Africa since the beginning of Christianity. And so this whole narrative of, of how Christianity is even shaped and formed is is off. It's not a white religion. Certainly not. It's certainly not a Western religion. Only 10% of the world's Christians today live in North America. You hear me? 10%. 70% plus of today's Christians live in Africa, Asia, and South America. Uh, this was part of God's design from the beginning. This incredibly diverse community brought together under this true unity, not fake uniformity, true unity under the banner of Christ. This is the power of God in us and among us. That's why we can disagree and still be Christians together. That's why my reformed Calvinist bros with their sweater vests and their pipes and my in-laws, you know, Acts 2 in-laws can enjoy heaven together forever. That's why right now across the globe, or you know, 11 o'clock, wherever, somewhere across the globe, people are worshiping God with incense and, you know, chanting and, and other Christians of the same family are worshiping God with fog machines and rock and roll music. And there's liturgy in some places and there's extemporaneous prayers in others and there's short sermons in some places and then there's us. And, you know, we're all together. We're one body. We're one family. That's the power of God in us. Nothing like it. There's nothing like it on earth. We are all one under Christ's banner because the power of God's Spirit brings us together. So the Holy Spirit brings power beyond our control. The Holy Spirit unites believers in spite of the things that would divide us otherwise. And finally, the Holy Spirit produces joyful fearlessness. Joyful fearlessness is a late addition to this sermon. Up until about yesterday at noon, I wanted to say the Holy Spirit produces holy drunkenness but I was talked out of that because I don't want to give anyone the impression that I actually mean drunkenness, but there's something about divine drunkenness that's true to this 
passage, something that we should be careful not to miss. Again, what was the first criticism levied by secular outsiders to the church? They're drunk, too much wine. Who drinks that much wine at nine in the morning? What's wrong with those people? And, and that was what it looked like. Why is that? Because a church that is full of God's spirit is always animated, extraordinarily loving, um, incredibly celebratory, and always free. The spirit-filled church looks nothing like the world, and thank God for that. It is a lot like drunkenness, actually. Um, and those here who are familiar with the experience of the Holy Spirit know exactly what I'm talking about. And others are like, I don't know what you mean. Sounds fun, but I don't know what you mean. So I want you to know that's like by design. God made us to be intoxicated. We just keep getting intoxicated by all the wrong things. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. What's he saying? Get drunk on the Spirit of God which is always poured out, full to overflowing. Your cup can always be full with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God will intoxicate you in ways that far exceed and surpass the lesser drunkenness that you seek through other means. When was the last time you felt drunk at church? Maybe don't answer that question out loud. When was the last time you felt drunk by the Spirit of God? In your walk with Christ, absolutely riding high, absolutely self-assured, courageous, impervious to all the things that would otherwise hold you back. Spiritual courage we're talking about. That's what the Holy Spirit brings. And over the years, I've seen this very thing. The Holy Spirit is just wild, just wild, cannot be contained. And I, I, another false, or, or Let's say short-changed analogy here. I just can't not say it because I heard a preacher one time say that if, if, if the Holy Trinity was the 90s bulls, that the Holy Spirit would be Dennis Rodman. That's what I heard him say once, and that has stuck with me forever. It's like, I don't think it's right, and I think I might get in trouble in heaven for having said that. But if St. Peter tries to stop me at the pearly gates, I'm just going to remind him, I never denied Jesus at his own trial. All right, so let's just work something out here, Peter, and we're square, you know? But there's something true about, like, like if you ever watched the 90s Bulls, you know that you could always depend on Jordan Pippen for certain things, but a man Rodman was this, this wild card that always just did unexpected things. And, and in some, some way, some much more holy way, I've, I've experienced that from the Holy Spirit as well. It's just... It's just it's hard to fully account for the Holy Spirit's work intellectually and emotionally. Why? Because he refuses to be contained by our intellect and our feelings. He is wild. He is holy. He is, he is strong and wise. And, and he will give you words to speak that you never spoke before. And he will give you power to share that's real power that can change the trajectory of your life and your kids' lives and your friends' lives and power that you never thought you could tap into before. He will move in wild, unimaginable, unpredictable ways. And that's the beauty of being part of this movement of his spirit. It's because, I mean, you're never bored. Boring Christianity is spiritless Christianity. And I don't mean you're always going to be worn out and on the move. There's times for rest, but spirit rest is so much better. 
and just being bored. Sometimes I see a church, the churches of today that are, that are just so boring. I don't know what to tell you. They're just, they're just, it just feels cold and boring. And, and, and Christians individually can sometimes feel the same way. It's because we boil everything down to this religion that we control. The Holy Spirit of God can set you free from that and fill you up with something you've never been filled with before and set you loose to be an agent of his power in the world. I've seen this. Y'all, I've seen it happen in real life. I've seen it happen with people in this church. I've seen it happen to a CEO of a Fortune 500 oil and gas company. He stands six foot six. He is as measured a man as I've ever met, controlled, always under control, always reasonable. That man went with us to the Dominican Republic one year and one night in worship as the kids led us in some song I didn't know because it was in Spanish. That man became a living pogo stick. He just bounced around the room with the biggest smile on his face. I'll never forget it. And I knew it was the Holy Spirit of God in him. He looked ridiculous, and he knew it, and he didn't care. Because when the Holy Spirit of God fills you, you are uninhibited by what looks cool or not. It doesn't matter. It's the Spirit of God. I've seen the same thing with students that get out of their own routines and away from their own parents and maybe their own friends groups and they leave their homework behind, they leave their devices behind and they go for a weekend to something called Forge like we sent our students to last fall and, and they just came not only alive, they came to light like there was a light in them when they came back. I saw it in my own kids and it was just like a, a switch had been flipped in them, like something was alive in them. It was the Holy Spirit of God that they had finally uh, relented to and received. I see it all the time. When we send men and women's groups into prisons and jubilee prison ministry weekends, it's just like a spirit of God outpouring into people. It's always fun to watch that happen for the first time in someone. They go into a prison just afraid, like surrounded by, you know, convicts and, you know, criminals and all the stuff, we, all the labels we put on people and what they find in there are brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the end of the weekend, everybody's so full of the Holy Spirit that nobody knows who the prisoners are and who the free people are. They're just all free. They're all free in Christ, in a prison, together, looking forward to heaven. Like, it's a beautiful thing to behold. There's nothing in this world that's like it. And if you've never experienced, I want nothing more than that for you. And more importantly, God wants nothing more than that for you. And it's not complicated. It's not insurmountable. There's no magic formula or perfect life you have to live in order to receive this spirit that we're talking about. Just follow the formula, follow the, the pattern of what you see in Acts chapter 1 and 2. What did they do? Were they magically super Christian religious dudes? No. They believed the word of God. They trusted him enough to do what he said, which was get together and wait. They got together and they waited, and they were open to receive the gift that God had to give them. It's as simple as that. If you feel powerless in your journey, if you're Faith feels speckless. It's a Holy Spirit deficiency. If you feel isolated, cut off from other believers, it's a Holy Spirit deficiency. There may be a symptom of that. And, and of course, if you feel bored and directionless in your walk, it's probably a Holy Spirit deficiency. I pray that you will not let a moment pass before you take this seriously and direct your prayers around the Holy Spirit. Direct your life, everything around the Holy Spirit. Pray directly to God for the Holy Spirit. Subject yourself to Christian community and wait expectantly to receive the Holy Spirit. 
Make receiving the Holy Spirit part of your mission this week. Let's pray together. Jesus, uh, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to us so that we're not alone in this journey. Thank you for setting your church on fire, Lord, in the most beautiful way possible. We are sorry for missing the point so often. We're sorry that we have put ourselves and our own desire, our own will before your will for us. We've wanted to stay in the driver's seat, Lord, and all along you've just patiently waited for us to, to hand over the keys to our lives, and I pray that that happens today in my life and in the lives of those who are gathered here and those watching online. Lord, as we prepare to receive this communion now, Lord, just bring us into a spirit of worship and help us to expectantly uh, anticipate your spirit being poured out on us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.